We've had a number of people over the past few months ask about alternative investments. So today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe gives his take on private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, real estate investment trusts, and angel investing. The fellas also discuss risk parity investing, net unrealized appreciation, what to do with a large settlement, and the break-even point for Social Security benefits. I'm producer Andy Last, and you still have a couple of weeks to help us make this your favorite podcast ever. Fill out my YMYW podcast survey in the show notes for this episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Now, let's talk about those alternative investments. Here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and coming up later, Big Al Clopine, CPA. We got Steve from San Diego. Hi, Andy. He actually, he emailed us a while ago. You guys answered his question about how to diversify his portfolio for the best returns or tax efficiency. So, so when I sent him the response that you guys gave him, oh, this is how he responded to me. Got it. He goes, thank you so much for writing in your nice letter. What do you send him? Love letters or what? <laughs> I send him the link to the podcast and the video sure. and he's all set. I uh, got it. And uh, the great material you provided. I can't tell you enough how thrilled I was to listen to the answer on your show. I have to tell you, the fellas knocked it out of the park with their answer. Joe gave us a seminar on modern portfolio theory. And Al gave us another seminar on the tax implications of the different accounts. And they each contributed to the other's topic. It was truly riveting radio. I swear I did not write this wow. about you guys. Steve. <laughs> Steve. Loving it. During the show, you asked them about alternative investments, which was actually a topic I was very interested in. So I was hanging on my seat, waiting to hear about that. Of course, there wasn't enough time, which is very understandable. They already had packed in a lot of information. Maybe this week we can address that. What alternative investments have you seen people use in the effective balance portfolio? From the ridiculous to the sublime. Uh, with an emphasis of things they found to work. Um, if that's too much, no worries. All right, um, Steve, let's talk alternatives, I guess. Everybody hears this is the greatest investment ever. you got to get into this because it's going to make you a ton of money. All right. Well, let's start with, there's a few that people should probably understand. Mm-hmm. Like private equity. Yep. Okay. So there's more private companies than there are public companies. Okay. And most of them are small, right? If you take a look at the grand scheme of all the companies in the United States, I would say 80% or more, 90%. I don't know the exact figure. Big Al would know that, but um, are smaller companies. Mm -hmm. And then a majority of them are very, they're private. And so private equity is getting a lot more popular, I think, in the last probably 10 years. More and more companies don't want to go public because they just don't want to deal with the BS of being a public company. All the bureaucracy involved. Right. To be honest with you, you yeah. know, you got to answer to people. <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah, you got to answer to people a lot more than just your employees, right, right? and your clients. Because th- th- before that was the only way for companies to raise capital. So why people go public to begin with is that, all right, well, here, I started this business. And then the business gets a little bit bigger, and it gets a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger. And then either that you want to continue to grow, or the owner wants to diversify a little bit because every ounce of his life and his in his net company. worth is in that company. Right. So it's like, okay, well, what do I do? I can't really cash out of anything in the company without capital, yep. right? So then that's where IPOs came in. 
initial public offering. So then they would go to investment bankers and say, hey, we need cash. And then they said, okay, well, let's do this. Let's take your company public. And so people can buy shares of your stock. And so when people went public, right, people bought these shares and then that gave owner liquidity. Mm -hmm. So now it's kind of the same concept, if you will, but it's just private. So you got private equity managers. So what they're doing is they're going to institutions, they're going to individuals, and they build these funds. Okay. And so let's say they got a hundred million dollars, two hundred million, five hundred million. You know, it's a pretty big fund. Yeah. So they're going around looking for really good opportunities. So they're going to look at growing companies that want liquidity or that have a really good story that they could, you know, make a fairly good profit off of it in maybe a three, five, seven year time frame. Mm-hmm. And if I'm an investor in a private equity fund, my funds are locked up. Yeah. Right, it's very illiquid, so you have to wait five years, and hopefully the fund manager knows what they're doing or finds these little diamonds, diamonds in the rough. Yeah. So as an investor, small it's, companies that are going to do well instead of tank. Correct, but most small companies fail, right? Tank, yes. So these private equity firms are going around looking to say, all right, well, you know, this is a really good growth story. Maybe we pump some capital into this firm and we can help them grow, Mm -hmm. but we're flipping out. We're getting out. So as an investor in a private equity fund, it's like you're stuck with that money in five years. On the other side of the coin is that, let's say I'm a small business owner and I'm working with private equity. They're just going to pump and dump me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to come in for five years. They're going to try to make it grow. They're going to put all this money into it, and then hopefully they can get their multiple plus X right. out of it within five years. So they're looking at firms in certain growth stages, right? So is it a good investment? Sure. I mean, you know, a lot of these companies that private equity firms look at are growing companies, or they probably wouldn't necessarily waste their time with them. But the risk. There's a ton of risk yeah. because a lot of these small companies fail. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's like, okay, well, what are they going to do? The, the private equity firm needs to get their bottom line so they could shred that company, try to do something and flip it again. So there's a lot of things that happen within the private world mm-hmm. that you can't necessarily do in the public world, which is good and bad, right? There's pros and cons to right. each of it. Yep. So when you hear private equity, that's, you know, I know there's a lot more to this, but I guess we're just talking really elementary here. Right. Um, so if you could get into uh, private equity funds, a lot of times you have to be an accredited investor, which means you have to have a certain level of net worth and a certain level of income. Right. I don't know who comes up with that BS either. Because I know I know a lot of people that have a large income and fairly large net worth, but are incompetent to right. save their you yeah. know what. And I know that some individuals that are still growing are the smartest people you know that you probably meet that should be able to invest in some of this stuff. So yeah, that's private equity. I guess we could talk about venture capital. We yeah, could yeah. talk about I don't know real estate. We could talk about I don't really want to talk about crypto. Well, but we so can. so real quick. So if somebody is going to put money into alternative investments, have you got like a should it be five percent of their portfolio? Does it well, it depends, or does it on, depends on uh, each person. Yeah, I would say it depends on how much money that they have, yeah. right? If you're just trying to build, and I would say keep it simple. But if you've got money that's discretionary, that if you lose it all tomorrow, not a problem. Then not a problem. Then that's when you would probably look at it. Yep. So most of our listeners, it's probably zero percent. Okay. Right. So Steve was curious about alternative investments. Um, you're just joining us. I talked a little bit about private equity, and let me just do a caveat here. I'm a total novice when it comes to alternative investments. We could get someone on that would bore the hell out of us and talk all <laughs> all about it. I'm just giving you the very high level of what I know. Yeah. And it could be wrong. Okay. Just that's my CYA. All right? right. Venture capital is another kind of 
hot topic that you know all the kids are talking about at the you know when they're drinking their uh, pints of um, you know um, not Coors Light, not Coors Light, whatever that <laughs> you know uh, micro brew they're having their little shepherd's pie uh, malt liquor whatever that man you are really showing yourself as not being a craft beer drinker well, well, what the hell's a craft beer drinker i don't know i don't drink it either okay <laughs> mine's yeah. modelo especial that's my beer of choice oh nice little um accent there with the especial there you go <laughs> you gotta throw that in there of course all right san diego um uh what the hell were we talking venture, venture capital. capital okay well that's kind of very similar to private equity in a sense where it's really a startup right it's like so we're talking even riskier than the private equity. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, it's all pretty risky to yeah. tell you the truth. But this is like, all right, Facebook, uh, Netflix, and companies like that. In the very beginning, they're not making a profit. Still, all these companies still don't make profits, right? Right. Where PE firms come in, they're going to take a look at. All right, well, what's the EBITDA here? What are you guys doing? What's wait, wait, the- wait, EBITDA. Yeah, explain that. I'm not going to get into that. What People, does it stand for? It, 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 is there a profit? Okay. Right? So with venture capital, they're going to be like, you're not even in the black. What the hell's going on? Because these firms are kind of just pumping everything back into their overall company. And so if there's no profit, but the idea is cool, the technology might be there. And so they're just going to start pumping money. So that, those are VC firms yeah. in the very beginning of the cycle, potentially. Uh, so they're just going to pump money in, pump money in, pump money in, and then just try to flip it out, mm-hmm. we, either with an IPO. Like I don't think Facebook made a dime. Well, they might might have, but you know they didn't make a lot until the IPO. So a lot of these like tech firms, you look and it's like, well, here they're not really making a lot of money. Or Tesla, right? yeah. firms like that. It's like, well, how the hell are these getting these valuations? You know, the firm is worth X, but the profit's not there just because it's so forward-looking. Yep. So hedge funds. You want to talk about hedge funds? Tell me about hedge funds, Joe. By the way, EBITDA stands for Earnings yeah, Before Interest, it. Tax, Depreciation, and Amortization. Yes. Crikey. That's why I didn't want to go yeah. through that whole, yeah. Hedge funds. All right. With a hedge fund, most of them will invest in a public company. See, to me, hedge fund automatically sounds like a bad thing. Because you always hear bad news about things happening with hedge funds. <laughs> or well, people getting in trouble with them. <laughs> well, I mean, because I mean, they could be unregulated. Right. Okay. So it could be family money. It could be friends and family. So they might not be registered through the SEC potentially, but those are the smaller ones. But a hedge fund would be they're investing in public companies. So okay. the liquidity feature on those is a lot different than venture capital or private equity. Because okay. private equity might be, okay, well, we're going to lock this thing up. We're going to flip this fund in five years. And then from there, the capital will get released. And then the investors will get their money back. Maybe we start another fund and kind of do it all over again. Or maybe they might have two or three, four funds going at the same time. And then one gets liquidated. And then another one kind of gets built up. With hedge funds, they're, they're investing in public companies. So the redemptions are a little bit quicker, but they might do like long short funds. And what that means is that they're shorting the market on okay. some areas. And what that means is that they think some area of the market's going to go down. So if you short it, you profit when stocks go down. And then they're long on other parts of the market. So it's called a, like a long short fund. Okay. So they're hedging. They're, they're hedging, hedging their bets. Yes, and so hence the term hedge, hedge fund. fund. So they're like, all right, well, I'm going to go long on U.S. stocks. I'm going to go short international. 
that's really broad and simple, but yeah. that it, it kind of get that's so the so their anticipation or their bet or their gamble is to say international stocks are going to go down, so let's bet that they're going to go down. U.S. is going to continue to perform, so let's go along there. So if someone owns that fund, they can have best of both worlds if U.S. companies do well and international stocks do not do well. Mm-hmm. So there's other like arbitrage. They could have a lot of leverage on it. So they're just doing things just to potentially hedge. So in really boom markets, hedge funds don't necessarily perform. And as you can see over the last 10 years, hedge funds have not performed as well as maybe just a U.S. broad stock market index fund because they're hedging the risk. And so they suck until they don't. You know what I mean? Yes. And I think there's a lot of bad press when it comes to hedge funds just because they've underperformed a little bit. Plus, the hedge fund managers, they're going to charge you know 2% and 20% of the profit. So they're expensive. Wow, yeah. Right? So a normal registered investment advisor like ours would charge, let's say, 1% of the assets that we manage. They're charging 2% of the assets that are managed and then 20% of any profit. So it can get a little pricey. So, yeah, they have to make a whole bunch of money for you to actually make a decent return. Right. In some hedge funds, you know, they have killed it. Yeah. Absolutely killed it. But it's private money. I mean, you can't even come close to mm-hmm. as layman people like us to get in there, right. you know, because they got their little circles. And, and the bigger the fund, it's a lot more challenging for people to make money. The more stocks you buy, you're going to manipulate the price of that stock. If you manage billions, where if I'm managing, you know, maybe a hundred million, okay, well now I can kind of get in and out of the market, and I can produce higher returns. Hypothetically, is kind of what they say. But every squirrel finds a nut. <laughs> can I ask you about one more? Sure, I don't care. I don't know if I know the answer. REITs, okay. real estate investment trusts. This is something that everybody says if you want to get invested in real estate, but you don't want to be a landlord, you should go with REITs because it spreads out your risk across a bunch of different properties. So, what's your take on real estate investment trusts? Well, trusts. there's two different types of REITs you can purchase. There's public, publicly traded, and, then and private, non traded. Yeah. Right. So, non traded REITs. That kind of gets a little bit dicey because there's a lack of transparency. If I'm in a non-traded rate, there's one price and it doesn't get repriced for a while. And how they're sold, it could be a little dicey too of what they're representing, what the true rate of return is of the real estate investment trust is. But it's basically a diversified portfolio of real estate. Mm -hmm. So you could buy apartment buildings. You could buy healthcare facilities. You could buy nursing homes, hotels, hotels, right? The whole monopoly board. Right. And so then it's like, okay, well, I can be diversified in my portfolio strategy by buying real estate. I can package it up and buy a bunch of properties at a low cost in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in theory, it's a really good investment if you want real estate exposure and not necessarily be a landlord, right? right. But the downside of non-traded REITs is that the lack of transparency. So you, they might say, well, it's paying 7%, right? Mm-hmm. But that 7% could be the return of your capital which a lot of times you don't really know. You're getting a dividend check of 7%, and they're not changing the price. Right. You put $100,000 in, you're getting $7,000 a year, and you you're look at your statement. back at you from right. your 100000 <laughs> Yes. Yeah. But on the statement, it still says 100000 until they reprice the REIT. Mm. And then they're hoping that potentially that the real estate is going to go up and appreciate in value, and then so they can cover their assets right that way. <laughs> 
But if the market goes down, like we saw in 2008, I mean, that's what blew a lot of people up. And then all of a sudden they start repricing these non-traded REITs. And it's like, well, man, I thought it was worth 100. Now it gets repriced at, you know, 35,000. And you're like, what the hell just happened? So I don't like the lack of transparency, but in a boom market, you can hide anything. Warren Buffett said that, you know, but then when the tide comes in, you can see who's naked or whatever. Right. Yeah. Traded REITs, you can buy like an exchange traded fund, a mutual fund. So there's a lot more transparency there. So, I mean, you got an NAV, the pricing will fluctuate depending on the value of the overall securities within the fund. Right. I like that a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to get out of it, trade it, buy more, buy less. It's daily liquidity. And then you still get the same exposure of the, the real estate. So. Uh, there's pros and cons to each, but I'm a bigger fan of the traded one because Publicly they're yeah, yeah they're a lot less expensive. Yeah, they're a lot less expensive. They're liquid and uh, transparent. Okay, so overall, for Steve and other people who are trying to consider, you know, what they should do about alternative investments, how should they look at these things, and what should inform their decision about whether to make that an alternative investment? Well, I don't know if I'm equipped to give that advice. Um, okay. You look at let's say it depends for each person. Yeah, right? you look at Yale's endowment, which is one of the best investments. About 33% of their overall portfolios in alt, right? They're in hedge funds, but they have access to different managers than a lot of people that listen to the show. So it really depends on their goals, what they're trying to accomplish, what their risk tolerance is, how much capital that they have. Do they even qualify to get in any of this crap anyway, right? Mm-hmm. I would say for the average investor, I would probably not necessarily venture into it. But like I said before, if you got a couple of extra bucks that you're willing to lose 100% of it, then, you know, hey, buy some Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> trying to get into, you know, a little private equity. Right. But most of the time, you need a lot more money than that or, you know, being an angel investor, right? Well, you got to be a multimillionaire to do some of this stuff. So right. you hear the alternative investment kind of slogan because some of this stuff is super sexy, super cool. Yeah. Right. You watch Shark Tank, you know, exactly. those are angel investors and hey, let's get into the mix. You can see all these new, st- you know, and there's a story behind it. Right. Here's this company that's doing X, Y, and Z, and then you get excited, and it's like, oh my God, I'm going to be you a millionaire start to overnight. To them, and yes, you feel right. like you, you care about them. So and all that. I mean, yeah. but that's not necessarily investing; that's right. speculating, right. right? That's like, okay, well, here, let me put a little bit down just to try to make a billion dollars. Versus your investment strategy should be watching grass grow. It should be extremely boring. It should be predictable in a sense where you know what's going to happen if markets are volatile. So don't let that greed get a hold of you. That's right. 10 Key Decisions Can Help You Target Long-Term Wealth. Learn what strategies will improve your odds of long-term investing success in our free white paper, Pursuing a Better Investment Experience, newly updated for 2019. Seriously, like fresh off the press today. You can download it from the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Just click the show notes link in the description for this episode in your podcast app, and it'll take you right there. Now let's get to some more of your money questions and comments. Go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com, scroll down and click Ask Joe and Al on air. You can send in your comments, thoughts, compliments, complaints, and questions as an email or as a voice recording. Uh, just like Jason did from Seattle. Hey guys, uh, appreciate the show. It's uh, good fun. Uh, wondering what your thoughts are on risk parity investing, specifically mixing uh, equities with long-term treasuries, maybe a small slice of gold to achieve uh, higher risk-adjusted returns. Historically, it's worked pretty well, but uh, interest rates have been falling for you know 30 years now. So wondered what your thoughts are on the strategy going forward. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay. 
Jason was in like a wind tunnel. <laughs> he told me he actually recorded that on his iPhone. So I like it. Yeah, he may have just gone for a jog. He was out of breath. Well, no, you know what? It's it's our stupid computer little button there because yeah. he did say that he had to like hit the button seven yeah, times. Seven before times. Before yeah, seven times. He was out of breath because <laughs> the thing sucks. <laughs> that's probably true. All right. Um, well, risk parity. Yeah, he's getting that's, that's deep. A good word. Yeah, risk parity. So. Risk parity investing as, um, how do I explain this real simply? Um, a lot of hedge funds do this type of investing. And you're right, Jason, you've done a little bit of homework. Historically, uh, risk parity investing has performed higher expected returns um, you know, than maybe like a normal 60-40 split. Here's how it works. Is how most people invest, or I guess most professionals invest, is that we'll take a look at a certain target rate of return that a client needs to achieve, and we try to mitigate that risk as much as possible. And so that is based on the roots of like modern portfolio theory, right? And so it's like any level of risk that you're willing to take, you should anticipate a certain expected rate of return. And then that pops out a portfolio of maybe 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And then you look at the bond component of that portfolio and the stock component of that portfolio. Stocks are a lot more risky than bonds are, right? So a lot of the risk, if you really get into the technical stuff of like sharp ratios and all of that, is that most of the risk by, that's performed in that portfolio is, is done by stocks, right? Would you agree with that? Yeah. Because bonds are fairly safe, depending on what type of bonds you own. So what risk parity investing does, it says, let's look at the risk side of it. And they use leverage. So they'll say, okay, I want a certain target risk of, let's say, variance of standard deviation of 11%. But I want to have um, that target 11% risk equally weighted by stocks and bonds. So if that were the case, let's say you have a 60-40 split, but so much of your risk is by your stocks. I want the same risk parity, if you will, but my portfolio might be... 80% bonds and 20% stocks. But if I look at the expected rate of return of an 80% stock, 20% equity portfolio, a 60-40 split is going to be a lot higher expected return, right? Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. Because yeah. you said 80% equity, 20% I'm sorry, I'm sorry. stock. Mine would be 80% bond, 20% equity. Equities. If there that okay. risk parity was equal. Okay. Okay? Yep. So, but if I have 80% of my portfolio in bonds, my expected rate of return is going to be a lot lower. Yeah, that's 60 40. 60% then 60% equities. stocks. Correct. Because I only have 20% of my, my portfolio subject to risk. So, what do I do? I lever. So, I add leverage to the overall portfolio. Okay. So, in that case, I would two times lever that thing up. So, now I'm going to have a higher expected return just due to the fact I'm adding more risk to the equity side of the portfolio. Sure. But there's less equity component of the portfolio because I'm adding leverage. And, Alan, explain leverage. <laughs> that was going to well, be my next question. That's, uh, I, I guess, simply put, if you, if you, you want to buy $100 worth of stock, it costs you $100. But if you want to buy a $200 worth of stock, one way to do it is to invest $100 and borrow $100. So now you've still invested $100, but you've borrowed another 100 So you have $200 invested in the market. And leverage is great when the market goes up, because in that example, you double your return. But it also it kills you terrible on the downside, because it doubles your loss. So you're putting more money in safer asset classes, 
right? Less money in riskier asset classes, and you're adding leverage to the riskier asset classes to get your higher expected return up. But that all works out perfectly in a mathematical equation, right? Sure. Uh, but then there's a cost to all of this. There's a cost of margin. There's a cost of the leverage, right? So how much are you actually paying? If I'm an individual investor, it's going to cost me a lot more than if I'm an institution. So that's why hedge funds probably do this a lot better than you know maybe Jason from Seattle can. So parity investing, I guess, in a nutshell, is how it works. So he's looking at you know maybe throw. It, it, I really simplified this. You can use several different asset classes. I just use stocks and bonds. Right. And he's talking right? about equities, long-term treasuries, and maybe a slice of gold. Well, he's still talking stocks and bonds. Right. Right. So because you have to have an expected risk-adjusted expected return, your bonds need to be higher than your stocks. That's probably why he's using longer-term treasuries. Treasuries are a very, very safe investment. If I go a little bit longer on the yield curve, you're going to get a higher expected return on that. So that's why he's right. using that. And then you throw a little bit of commodity in there, you know, to mash it up with some derivatives. <laughs> and we got a whole little piece of pie there. <laughs> so I don't know. Try it, bud. I, I, I'm a fan of it, but it's it's really hard to execute. <laughs> it's pretty expensive, depending on where you go. I mean, there's ETFs right now that are doing this type of investing. It's been around since the 70s. Um, AQR is one of the better um, alternative firms. Uh, they're like the DFA of alternatives. Mm. And so uh, they have a parity fund. You could get into that. I'm, I'm not sure what their minimums are. I'm not recommending anything, but uh, Jason's a good listener. I thought I'd you know, not leave them hanging. And so what do you think about the idea of using leverage for this? Too risky? No. I mean, it depends on your goals, your time frames, and what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, everyone uses leverage every day. Right. Right. If you have a mortgage, you're using leverage. If you use credit cards, you're using leverage. If you have any type of loan, you're using leverage. Right. It's just, how are you going to manage the leverage that you're currently using? People get greedy, right? Because they see the returns of leverage of what it can do. And then 2008 happened. And then what happened? Right. Everyone blew themselves up. All their leverage killed them. Right. Because it's a double-edged sword. So if I'm looking at it and saying, hey, I want to take a small sliver of my portfolio and add leverage to it, sure, but is it worth it? That's the problem because you could do the math, mathematically saying, yes, it would probably be worth it to use parity investing just in a bubble. But life doesn't work in a bubble. We've and then had you, that conversation before. Right. You've got to look at costs. You've got to look at trading costs. You've got to look at the cost of le- you got to. I mean, all of that combined. And then you have to look at behavioral because some of this stuff will take you, – you need like a, a pit in your stomach to make it through. It, it's patient investing because you see the market tank and that leverage is going to go in on the other side. And all of a sudden you see that stuff blow up. You're like, oh, my God, this sucks. You're going to get out. You're not, you know what I mean? So it, it all depends. But we're talking fractional of percentages. It seems like a lot of work for that. So here's my two cents. Uh, for the average person, don't do it. Right. I'll, no. just, I'll just put it that way. Well, uh, Jason uh, listens to this show. He is yeah. not average. No. <laughs> but I, I mean, for our for the rest of our listeners, I, I would say this is not really – this is a much riskier way to invest, I think. Right. Because you get a higher expected return from it. Right. And right. If, if you're, and it's not a lot, too, Al. It's like maybe – 
50 basis points, 30 basis points, right? For the average person, is that really going to make or break? Maybe over 30 years if you got millions and millions of dollars. But if I'm managing a hedge fund that has a billion dollars, 30 basis points is a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah, right? no, that's, that's different. You know, your $100,000, It's don't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> Who cares? Oh, you think I have 100 now? <laughs> I almost. It's 50. Working on it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that's my two cents, is, is it's an interesting discussion, but it's not for most people. All right. Um, yes, we never give advice on this show. That was not advice. That was just a chat conversation with my buddy from Seattle, having a little coffee right there at Starbucks. Right. I mean, I mean that was so stupid. <laughs> how many times, if you're from Seattle, I mean, how many times you hear that from some jackass in San Diego? Yeah, well, that's what you say when think- you when you hear right. Seattle. Yeah. I don't think I mean, I've ever heard you talk about anything other than beer. I'm kind of shocked. I know. It's like Minnesota. They'd be like, hey, how's that green belt? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Dan, he's uh, 58, lives in Florida, and I'm ready to retire. So he's been with this company for 30 years. I have over $1.4 million in his 401k plan, which is 40% company stock with a cost basis of $46,000. I have a pension... Uh, that will pay a lump sum of $248,000 or a monthly payout where my wife would receive the same amount if I die of about 1200 bucks. If we take Social Security when I'm 62, we will jointly get $3,000 a month. Uh, that plus a monthly pension will give us $4,200, which will pay all of our expenses if need be. My wife and I are about the same age and currently both in good health. I think I will most likely be able to stay in the 12% tax bracket in retirement. I would also like to convert as much as possible from the 401k rollover IRA to my Roth each year while staying in the 12% tax bracket. Here's my questions. Um, How much should I NUA? Number two, should I take the lump sum or monthly pension? As you can probably tell, I'm leaning towards a monthly payout. I believe it works out to be about 5.8%. Love your show and podcast. And this is my second time submitting questions. Oh, wow, wow, Dan. It's only one question per <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> Thanks so much for all the great information. You guys rock. All right. So how much should I NUA? Well, first of all, let's explain what NUA is. NUA is Net, net unrealized, unrealized Appreciation. appreciation. Wow. <sighs> wow. Look at you, Andy. Okay. So what, what he's stating here is, um, I, of course, I don't have my calculator with me today. Um, 46% of, or fifth, let's call it $700,000 is close enough. 47% of his 1.4 is in company stock. So seven hundred grand is in company stock. 46,000 is his basis. So he bought shares for 46,000. It has grown to 700,000. That's pretty incredible. But it's all company stock. Yes. So he's he's so he's like he's asking how much should I NUA? NUA is a pretty cool or not pretty cool. It's a really cool tax strategy if you do have company stock inside your 401k plan. So I work for XYZ company. I have XYZ company stock in my 401k plan. The IRS allows me to take the stock out of my 401k plan um, and only pay tax on whatever the basis is. Wow. So as ordinary income. Uh So if he keeps the stock in the 401k plan, that's 700 700 grand, 
he sells the stock and you know throws it out, it would all be taxed at ordinary income, or he could do net unrealized appreciation. So he could move the full $700,000 out of the 401k plan and only pay ordinary income tax on forty six grand. So he's asking, how much should I do? All of it. All of it, yeah. Who cares? 46000 to get seven hundred out? Then, yes, all of it. Absolutely, without question. Um, that's, a, that's, that's a no-brainer. Unless he forgot a zero in saying <laughs> it's 460000 <laughs> um, And if that's the case, well, then Dan will be probably um, sending us a third question. Right. <laughs> uh, but if it's $46,000, absolutely do it all. Pay the tax, uh, ordinary income tax. I don't care what tax bracket that you're in. Forty-six grand. move that over. Now you got 700000 bucks sitting in a brokerage account. You can slowly, um, and then you could sell those at capital gain rates. Then you just want to be careful of selling that stock at capital gains rate just to look for um, net investment income tax, which is AGI or modified adjusted gross income of $250,000. They add another 3.8% on top of the capital gain. Um, If you go in the highest bracket, so if you sell that all, um, you sell the full thing of $700,000. Um, that might put some of that capital gain at uh, 20%. So then you would just want to have a capital gain strategy um, from there. And then if, the question is, should he take a pension as a monthly or a lump sum? I think he's already made up his mind there. 5.8% yeah. is pretty good. If he did the math, I would have to double check it with my calculator, which I don't have. Uh, but 5.8% is his internal rate of return is what he calculated. So I'm right on board with Dan. He's on track. Good for you, buddy. Thanks for the question. Uh, Maurice... I want to know your suggestion for a person about to receive a settlement of over two hundred fifty thousand bucks. All right, Maurice. Um, I don't know what what, what what's the money for. What How old you, are you? How old are you? What are you trying to do here? Uh, what's your other assets? What's your income? Yep. Uh, what tax bracket are you in? Married, single. Uh, yeah. Well, a couple more um, details here, bud. For us to answer that appropriately, uh, but in general terms, I would probably, um, if it was for long-term retirement, um, it's it's a settlement. So I'm assuming that this is a legal settlement. In for some case, is that taxable? No, I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. It could be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a lot of information that we need to <laughs> yeah. for you to be able to answer yeah. this question. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea. It could be um, a structured settlement. Hmm. Um, it could be, um, or maybe just settled something with someone. It was. Ta- I don't know. Let's say it's net two fifty. Okay. <laughs> All right. But even if it was taxable, well, I mean, then you would have to do some other set of tax planning if it's you know ordinary income, but. Let's assume Maurice gets two hundred fifty thousand. We get this question all the time. What would you do with it? I mean, and then they only give us this, right? Right. I would go into globally diversified portfolio, <laughs> low cost, and tax manage it. Right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a stupid answer to a um, a question that doesn't give me a lot to work with mm-hmm. there. So, um, Maurice, go to yourmoneyorwealth.com. Go to our resources center or. And I believe there is an investment guide there, isn't there? Don't we have talking about pursuing a better investment experience? Yeah, pursuing a better investment experience. That is in our white paper section in the free financial resources section at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. So that can kind of give you an idea of what to think about when you are investing. 
Um, and then if you want more, then there's calculators that you can go to to kind of give you a, an idea of what that portfolio should be made up of, uh, given your risk tolerance, um, you know, age and all and maybe of that. if you have debt, pay that off before you start investing. Right. So that, yeah, there's, you want to make sure that you have a cash reserve. Yep. I mean, if it's for a home, you put it in cash. Right. Right. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I've put that Pursuing a Better Investment Experience white paper in the podcast show notes. Now, in your podcast app, just tap the link that's in the description of this episode to get there. This week on the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show, Joe and Big Al are talking about how to create a steady stream of retirement income. And you can watch that in the podcast show notes, too. And download the companion guide on creating retirement income. It's all free. There are a ton of free financial resources at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now, who do you know that's thinking about retirement or should be? How much would they appreciate it if you were to share all of these resources with them? If you were to send them the link to subscribe to the YMYW podcast, you would be a retirement hero. So, like, what are you waiting for? Oh, that's right. At the top of this episode, I promised a discussion of Social Security break-even points. All right, we'll do that, and then you're going to share this, right? Okay, it's a deal. We got Dan writing in from Fallbrook. He commented on our uh, television show, Social Security Secrets. Right. I don't know if there's too many secrets when it comes to Social Security. I think that was the title of our show. I, I understand, but it's, <laughs> it's like a, it's kind of it's, a, it just catches your attention, catch, yeah. right? Oh, I wonder. I wonder what they are. I wonder are, what the secret right? is. Um, so Dan writes in, while I enjoy your financial insight, I do wish you would have quickly gone into numbers a bit. For example, if a retiree takes Social Security benefits at the earliest possible age, at what age would he or she break even? Is it true that most retirees who take benefits at the earliest possible time will receive about the same benefits overall as the person that waits an additional eight years, right? <clears throat> All right, Dan. Um, apparently he hasn't listened to any podcasts. He's just watched one. Right. He watched our Social Security Secrets TV show. Sure. That was probably one of our worst shows ever. We probably didn't talk about <laughs> break-even point. Uh, let's get into the break-even point. Dan, you're right. If you look at Social Security as an investment, some people look at it as a break-even, right? So you could use thousands of assumptions here. And I've got a table here, which is from FII, FI Guide powered by NAPFA, National Association of Personal Financial Planners. So I'm guessing, I mean, I've seen break-evens at 78. I've seen break-evens at 74. So here's what they say. Okay. And it depends which age you're comparing, right? So let's start with the most obvious. The earliest you can take it is age 62, and the latest is age 70. So if you wait, instead of taking it at age 62, you take it at age 70, the break-even point's 80, right? Which is what we've, 80 years old. 78, 80. Yeah, which is kind of, we've, we've seen 78, eight, uh, 79, 80, 81, 82. It depends on what assumptions you use, right? right? Now, if you take... That's uh, just straight line. That's just straight line. That's just saying, okay... For example, what we're doing here is that let's say Dan's Social Security benefit at full retirement age is $1,000. If he claims his Social Security benefit at age 62, which is the earliest that Dan can claim, it's going to be $750. Right. If he waits until age 70, it's going to be about $1,300. That's right. So that's the difference. So Dan's saying, hey, man. If I take my benefit at 62, even though I'm going to receive a lower benefit, 
right? And if I live until normal life expectancy, I'm going to have X amount of dollars in the kitty, right? If I wait until age 70, I'm waiting, but I'm going to get a higher benefit, but I'm still dying. I'm going to receive the same amount of money from the Social Security benefit. That's accurate. And that is absolutely true if we had life expectancies in the 1980s. Right. Right? Because the, the Social Security Administration did not care. But what happened is that what OBRA, the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, oh, look at you. was signed. <laughs> and they changed a lot of stuff with Social Security, but they did not change kind of the life expectancy within it, right? Because before, everyone claimed their benefit at age 65 was their full retirement age, and then they pushed it out to age 70, depending on what date of birth you were uh, born. Then they taxed an additional 35% on the benefit. And this is back in the 80s with Reagan, right? And then Bill Clinton kind of signed it again in the 90s. But with all of that stuff, and this is coming from Kitches, right? Remember when he talked about that? Yes, right. He's like, what they didn't do is they didn't kind of change things for life expectancy. So if you took it back in the 80s, it didn't matter. Social Security didn't care. So that's why there's so much more information and noise in, in articles and questions about Social Security than ever before in the 20-some-odd years I've been in business. Is that because people are living a lot longer? And because of that, there's more claiming strategies that people should be educated upon. So it depends on when you die, Dan. If you know when you're going to die, we'll tell you exactly when to take it. Right. But, but we don't really know that answer. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add to a couple comments here. First of all, I want to, from this chart, uh, full retirement age is currently age 66. And if you don't take it, at, if, if, you could, if you took it at 66 versus age 70, the break-even point is 82 at, at that point, the delta between those four years. But I'm also going to say this isn't a very relevant question, even though it's, it's the one everyone asks, because the way I look at it uh, is Social Security is kind of like longevity insurance. Mm-hmm. And now if you, if you need Social Security, like there's a lot of folks where Social Security is – 90% of their income. That's that's about half of us. It's about 90% of the income. So if you need the income, you're going to delay it as long as you possibly can work. And then as soon as you stop working, you got to claim it the next day because you don't have any other choice. Right. And so be it, right? But for the rest of us that have savings and don't necessarily need it, it's, it's a good longevity insurance for long life. And a, a lot of times the folks that have saved money can afford better medical care and they're living longer. So I, I would kind of think of it more that way than trying to calculate the break-even point. And even the break-even points that I just told you don't make any sense if you save it and invest it, right. because then now it's completely different numbers. Right. Because then you look at, because, um, God, I don't know, maybe this was 10, 12 years ago, we, we interviewed Lloyd Watnick and he's like, well, when should, you, when should we claim it? Well, <laughs> With a long pause. We're on <laughs> the edge long, of our seat. Super long pause. <laughs> yeah. But he was like, well, if you dig in at 62 and invested in municipal bonds that are producing a 5% rate of return, tax-free, blah, 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 that's the best way to go. But if you need to spend it, I mean, that's a totally different question. <laughs> so what are, you, what are you using the money for? Are you taking it and saving it, or are you consuming it? Right. If you're consuming it, well, then it's like, all right, well, if you can push it out, that's probably a better answer because we're living longer. And a lot higher benefit is probably better off for all of us if you have a little bit more cash flow. Right. I, I think the better, another better way to look at this is, is work as long as you can or you're able to or as long as you enjoy your work so you can delay Social Security. Even if you retire and don't need it, push it out because – 
it's going to be a lot greater benefit if you're married. The, the, the person with the highest benefit should push it out as long as possible so that whichever one survives the other one will get that higher benefit. But, you know, then you got to look at it. All right, do you think it's going to be there? If you don't, take it now. Right. If you got large pensions, do you think means testing is coming down the road? Take it now. Or maybe they'll tax more of it. Or tax more who, of it. Who knows? Take it now. Right. Right? I mean, there's so many different answers with this. You've got the political side of people thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get screwed here, so I better take it. Some people are thinking, you know, I, I think maybe Dan might be, a, a, you know, sitting w- with spreadsheets. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, figuring out, okay, well, what is the most optimal way here to, to maximize this? Uh, it, it, it's more of a personal question than, than just about any other question that we get. Sure. It's almost like paying off your mortgage, right? Let's say you have a mortgage, a couple hundred thousand dollar mortgage at a 3% interest rate, right? And you're going into retirement. The, the mathematical financial answer to that is probably to keep the mortgage, Right, because three and a half percent, your cost of capital might be two percent, depending on your your, your tax interest bracket. Rate deduction, right, right. So it's like okay, but hey, I hate debt. I want to pay this thing up. I mean, then that's emotional. Right, right. It doesn't make any financial sense, but emotional sense. If it makes you have that financial peace of mind, that's going to make more sense because that's going to put you to bed at night. Right, it's going to yeah. help you sleep. Yeah, or if you keep your mortgage and you you spend the difference, you're you're actually worse <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah, then you're worse is, off, which is what most people do. Right. So, so that that whole computation is kind of meaningless, really. It, it depends upon the behavior of the person. It's um, so just about every answer we give. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> we do say that a lot, yeah, don't we? Yeah, because we, we don't know. We, we, yeah. It's just BS answers is all we give here. Well, and we don't know all the facts um, on all these questions, although we do our best. Thank you, Andy, for filling in today. Thank you, Joe. A lot of fun. Um, I'm Joe Anderson. We'll be back again next week. This is Cold, Your Money, Your Wealth. You may be retiring in a few months or a few years. Either way, claiming Social Security is one of the most important decisions you'll ever make for retirement. The Social Security Handbook walks you through everything you need to know. Who's eligible, how benefits are calculated, the difference between collecting early and late, and the all-important taxation of your Social Security benefits. The Social Security Handbook is free to download from the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, where you will also find the links to share this podcast and subscribe. While you're there in the show notes, don't forget forget to fill out my 2019 podcast survey before April 18th for your chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Yes, there are derails. Stick around just for a couple more seconds. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors for your free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner. Just click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the security Securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. You can click on our Social Security Guide. I believe we have a guide. Social Security Handbook. Handbook. It's in the resources section. Resources. Of our yes, and I think we do have a break-even analysis in the Social Security Guide on our website. There you go. Um, you can go there, check out our guide, and um, or handbook. Handbook. Whatever. I don't know what the hell the difference is a handbook Handbook's between a guide. Way, way, way better. better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, would you That's rather have a? Thick. That's got some serious Would you pages rather have a guide or a handbook? I have hand. Book. That's, well, it depends that's, that's if, just more fun to depends say. Depends if I'm going for a hike or something. You know, if I'm in the wilderness, I probably need a guide. Sure. <laughs> I don't want a handbook. <laughs> 
some interesting comments about uh, your TV style. Yeah, we had a co- we had a compliment and we had a complaint. We did. So that's a new segment that I want to put in. <laughs> Compliments and complaints. And you know what? On the podcast survey, we've gotten a bunch of responses on that, and somebody actually addressed that and said, he doesn't talk too fast, and he isn't too loud. Everything he does is great. See? All right. <laughs> so there's but, your compliment. So there's, yeah, right? The, the complaint was like, you know what? You know, he talks too fast and blah, blah. It's like, we got like seven minutes to put a ton of content out there. And um, so if I if I talk too fast, you know what? It's technology. You can slow my ass down. <laughs> you can. Right? Re- rewatch Just it in burr. slow motion. So, now, was, now I was gone last week. So was the complaint directed at you? Yeah. Yeah, I figured. Yeah, it was. Actually, it was funny because the, the person that emailed us said, can you find a positive way to kind of tell Joe that he needs to slow down and not yeah. be so loud? <laughs> and I was so like, I yeah. just gave it to him to read. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to give reviews. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So, yeah. Well, that was written by me, by the so, way. Yeah. <laughs>